CoinFlip was really fun when I started figuring out how to solve problems. How do we get these ATMs on? How do we service them? How do we, you know, structure our customer experience department? Then it became like I figured it out, and then it was just about putting down more and more ATMs. And I got pretty bored of doing that because I like to solve problems. I like to do new things. I like to challenge myself. So I'm like, we got to take this to the next level. We got to bring in more users, different users. We got to go digital. And by the way, I'm gonna bring this all together, like the physical and the digital. I think, you know, there, there's other ATM companies out there that are, you know, starting off, or gas station owners want to put it, you know, try their own ATM now. And there's online exchanges, but there's no one that is a self-custodial digital platform. It also has these physical branches. So think of all the cool ways the digital and the physical can interact. Welcome to another episode of The Dirt, the place where we unearth the realities of business growth and liquidity events. Today, we have a super exciting guest who has managed to make a significant impact in the cryptocurrency space, not once, but twice. Introducing Ben Weiss, the founder and CEO of CoinFlip and Olive, a platform looking to make crypto accessible to everyone, including our parents, which is saying something if your parents are anything like mine. Today, we're going to hear about Ben's wild ride starting an ATM-based crypto company. My favorite part about today's discussion is when we dive deep into how founders can really get lost in an identity crisis between their company and their personal lives and the important balance of fixing problems fast and teaching or, or, uh, or should I say growing your people so that you're not always the one fixing everything. Make sure to share this episode on social media because we believe someone in your network needs to hear and see it today. All right, Ben, welcome. Hey, Jim, it's great to be here. How are you? I'm killing it, man. It sounds like uh, you guys have been killing it pretty well, too. Can yeah, you, uh, I'm trying to. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, kick us off, will you, just by sharing a little bit about how you guys got started or your origin story, if you will. Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, over close to eight years now, um, building a business. So I started CoinFlip with my co-founders back now in the end of 2015, early 2016. Uh, I was a senior at Vanderbilt University. I had some internships in you know the legal space. Um, when you don't know what you want to do, I think that's sort of a nice default. But I've never, I never took a business class. I never worked in business. But I found myself sort of obsessed with Bitcoin and crypto. I think it hit me. I was in my dorm room. I was playing with a couple Bitcoin on a wallet. And it hit me when I was like, wait, if I own this specific Bitcoin, it is mathematically and physically impossible for my roommate to do so. And if you think of the internet, one of the issues was there was no way to sort of um, show ownership, capture value. Um, If you think of, you know, songs being copied in those days and PDFs, you can make unlimited copies, but there was no way to actually like own on a public ledger something you created and capture value. And now the digital world is going to be bigger than the physical world. And if you think of 
um, the normal economy, property rights, markets, all that things that make it work. There was nothing like that in the Internet until blockchain. So that's when it hit me that Bitcoin and blockchain was going to be something big. And then I had a really good friend uh, from high school, Daniel, who had this idea of the Bitcoin ATMs. And I thought it was genius because, I mean, obviously there were exchanges out there and things like that, but we were pretty technologically sophisticated and it was difficult to buy Bitcoin. And I'm like, how is someone like my mom or my dad going to buy Bitcoin? This thing's never going to take off if there aren't easier options. So then the idea of the Bitcoin ATM, that was sort of born. And uh, me and my co-founders, we scaled that business uh, for years and years growing now to uh, over 5,000 ATMs across the globe. And we recently, just three or four weeks ago, launched Olive, which is our digital platform. So that's another interesting thing to talk about is how do you continue to evolve um, in a business, in a company? Because if you stay static, uh, you will not make it. Like every entrepreneur, no matter how big the company is, no matter how much revenue, you always have to think that you're sort of standing on a crumbling floor because it forces you to continue to innovate. So I guess that's my story. Yeah, no, it's a cool story. Uh, when when you um, when you look at the crypto industry as a whole, right? Um, obviously, there's there's been our hype cycles, and there's there's certainly been down cycles. You know what? How do you identify as a company and respond to key trends that are affecting crypto? Yeah, so a couple of things there. I mean. Bitcoin, crypto, it's still been the best, if not one of the best investments in the past 10 years. I think it's up over 60.8% last time I checked year to date, even with the turbulent economy. But it's so much more than that. It's the it's the underlying technology behind it um, from solving remittances to, I mean, most of the world, a lot of the world is unbanked. And so in the U.S., you know, we might think, oh, the system works fine, but a lot of countries there's not a stable currency. There's not easy access to banking. So it solves a lot of utility issues there. There's a lot of illiquid assets that could be tokenized and put on the blockchain. So, I mean, things are moving at a million miles per hour. And the ethos of CoinFlip, whether it's with the kiosk or the digital platform, has always been this thesis that if you look historically at tech companies and tech, there's a lot of great tech out there that never really gets traction or is never commercially viable because sometimes as a tech person, you want to build cool tech that is sort of looking for a problem. And you have to reverse that. You have to think of the problem. And we thought, well, obviously crypto is amazing. Obviously blockchain is amazing. That's not the problem. The problem is there's a lot of complicated jargon. It's not necessarily easy to use. You can't call anyone on the phone. Like 24-7 customer support has been a key for us because imagine, you know, you're, you've never bought Bitcoin before. You're taking sort of this leap. You buy it online and it doesn't show up for five days and you put in a ticket and you wait a week for a response. It's like, no, you got to call someone on the phone. So whether it's the digital or physical, our thesis has always been we got to sort of take this out of the cloud and make it more tangible and make it more easy. How do we get people into crypto who actually don't care about the ideology or the technology? And that's the challenge we're trying to solve for. Yeah, so not not that you've entirely solved it already, but what is what is the answer? Like what is what have you found are the the initial elements of that answer? 
I don't think I'll solve it in my lifetime, but I'm surely going to try. I think with the ATMs, it's that physical and tangible aspect. Not everyone, most people have never seen or heard of crypto until recently. There's sort of no reference point to it. So when you run across it for the first time, it's sort of confusing. But mm -hmm. everyone's used an ATM in their life. They're familiar with it. So how do you take a trusted concept or product and just apply it to something new? You don't always have to reinvent the wheel. Um, so that was something that I think was very important. Um, and there's elegant simplicity. Um, not starting with the customer. It's like, don't try and create an amazing product. Try and listen to what the customer says. And the byproduct of that is you will create an amazing product. Then the ability for someone to call in 24-7, the ability, it's not just a transaction. You can't think of it as transactional. You have to think of there, there's this crypto is here to stay. The financial system is changing. How do we guide customers through that entire journey from their first crypto purchase ever to in the future when you're maybe buying your coffee with stable coins? We want to be there every step of the way. So it's always evolving. You always have to evolve with the market. Yeah, yeah, you, you do. And, and uh, you've got some really... Um some really uh, focused questions, if you will, around how, how you guys have evolved uh, and grown in a market that has had its ups and downs um, and, and your story and, and some of the things that, that you've been through in, in your dirt, if you will. But be before, we, before we jump into some of those uh, you know, more deep questions, can you just, can you just talk about a time when, when you encountered significant dirt in the growth of your business and, and how you handled it, whether that was market activity or things going on internally, whatever it might be, just, you know, give us a story. Oh God, I give you so many stories. I think the first, I mean, I was challenged. I still get challenged every single day. I mean, I think you think your business gets to like a stable point and it never does. But the first time that I really felt at a loss, I would say was around employee number 50. Because the things that make you a good entrepreneur, like running through brick walls, rolling up your sleeves, doing everything yourself, um, getting in the weeds, just becomes unsustainable at some point. But, and I would say it's around, I mean, it depends on the business, but around employee 50, you can sort of no longer run the company based on personal relationships with people. You have to institute process, but you've been, you know, you've been rewarded for this skill set for running through brick walls. I mean, I would pull two or three all nighters a week. I would sleep in the office. I would shower across the street at Planet Fitness because it was $10 a month. But at some point, it becomes no longer about what you can do but about the teams you can build. Can you inspire people? Can you motivate people? And it, it sounds obvious, but it's actually incredibly difficult because like this is your baby. You have this emotional attachment to the business. You know, you became an entrepreneur because you wanted to roll up your sleeves and solve problems, but then you have to bring people in and you have to build a team. And I think knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know is incredibly important. So I think one of the pitfalls that I avoided that some of my entrepreneur friends didn't was I understood relatively early on that the skill set 
that made me good in the beginning wasn't necessarily going to transfer over if I didn't change how I did things and if I didn't bring seasoned management people um, around. So that was, you know, I think that was a time that was sort of like a coming to Jesus moment because I was trying to do everything myself. The co- it was like I'm working more and more hours. I'm working 18 hours a day, but the company seems to be moving slower and slower. And I just felt at a loss and it was really burning me out mentally. And it's almost like you had to go a little slower and build the process and uh, bring in people to actually move faster. Because like, let's say there's a problem. And you've seen it before, so you can solve it in 20 minutes of, you know, your own time. But that problem is going to keep coming up and up again. And if you train, let's say the person below you how to solve that, let's say that takes an hour and a half, but you only have to do it once. You're firefighting all day. So you're you're going to try and just say, oh, I'll just, you know, spend the 20 minutes solving that problem. But there's 100 problems to solve. So you actually have to take longer to, like, train people and bring them up to speed. And thankfully... I was able to do that, but it wasn't intuitive at first. It was still, I mean, even today, I sometimes feel the urge to jump into things and then I'm like, okay, I'll let them handle it. They know what they're doing. Yeah. And a a lot of people uh, listening are probably nodding their heads just like I am because, you know, there's, there's this, this happens in every company, right? As you start to, whether it's at 50 people or, or prior to that or after that, there's always this moment of realization where you need to evolve your founder led mentality to mm-hmm. um, a, a, a CEO and management and, and leadership led mentality differently than it was when you were, when you were such like the number one doer, for instance. Yeah. Right? Um, so, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit more about that. Cause there's a lot that you just said, I'd love to unpack. So what, what aspects of being a good founder do you think, do not necessarily translate into being good at running the company? And how have you bridged that gap? I think one, it's wanting to just get in and solve things right away versus building a process and a structure that can have the capacity to sort of solve these iterations of things that come up in the normal course of business. I think B, it's, I mean, there really is an emotional attachment to this, right? Like I, I want the website to look a certain way. I like, you're a founder, you're an entrepreneur. You care about how things look. You care about product. You care about every customer experience call and you want to, you want everything to be a hundred percent perfect. So I think actually the, a lot of founders have a perfectionism, um, drive in them. And like, here's the difference when you're starting perfectionism actually does sort of matter. Like you better execute, you better, you know, make your product look nice. You better get that, you know, be, be there in person, get the sale if you're in a B2B business. But then when you get to management, it's about doing an adequate job in an inadequate amount of time. And actually it's about, you have to be understand that you have to make trade-offs and Mm -hmm. as an entrepreneur, you don't like to make trade-offs because it feels like compromising and it feels like lazy and like not, you know, running through that brick wall. So there's always, like I always tell people now, it's like the most important question we have to ask is like, what are we doing that we need to stop doing? We need to do less things better. 
So how, how would you say your leadership style has evolved? Um, let's just say from the early days of coin flip to now the early days of olive. Now that you guys are, you know, building new product, new market, new, new ICP, I imagine to a degree, like how, do, how yeah. does the leadership style that you, that you offer to your team, how has that evolved? Well, so just to give your listeners some context, so CoinFlip is the Bitcoin ATM network. Now in, I think, over four countries, 5,000 locations, that's sort of what people would call the core business. Olive is this digital platform. And it's not just about leadership style, but you have to manage those two things differently. I mean, it's almost like starting a new company within a company. The ATM business, which is a more mature business, you're going to use traditional metrics and KPIs and like unit economics and really, you know, sort of incrementalism. How do we make this 10% more profitable? How do we cut cost? How do we, you know, make this experience 10% better? In the digital space, it's like, Half of it, it's not even about earning, it's about learning. Like you make a digital product and you think it's going to be used one way, but it never actually is used in the way you think it is. Or there's, you know, you might make a big bet on, you know, if you're building a platform, there could be 10 products and you may, might make a big bet on product A, but your customers are telling you it's actually B. And then how do you pivot very quickly if you're using the same financial metrics that we're using on the core business for sort of a new business within the company, we're going to make the wrong decisions because we don't even know what we don't know yet. So I think it's not just about leadership. It's about metrics. It's about KPIs. It's about management. Um, there's always a tension with resource allocation of, you know, the, the core business that's generating profits and real revenues is going to you know, there's going to be a bias to try and bring resources there, but you have to invest in the future too. From leadership, I would say it turns from a more sort of management and operational excellency on the core business side to an inspirational leadership. One of the buzzwords that people use is like motivational intelligence. If your people and your team are there for a paycheck no matter how well you pay people, you're already screwed. You need people who believe in you. You need people who believe in the product. You need people who believe in the mission and you believe people who believe in the vision. So I would say, I mean, mission and vision are always important, but at a core business, when you've largely achieved the mission to some extent, and now you're sort of refining it, you're making it operate better versus we're literally going to create something from nothing. That is a different, more inspirational type of leadership. And you have to, it's not just about inspiring, you know, every single employee and the rank and file employees, but you might be bringing in executives that have 25 years of experience and you're a 28 year old founder. And how do you sort of ins inspire someone like that? You have to use different um, leadership methods for different people um, in different parts of the business. And I think situational awareness, emotional intelligence, all those interpersonal skills become more and more important. I think another thing your listeners can relate to who've done this before is like sometimes the business is easy and the people um, is difficult. Like we're over 300 people now. We have 300 very smart people. When you bring that many people into something, there's go people are going to disagree. 
And yep. that's a positive thing. But then we all, once the decision is made, we all have to march together. So how do you keep everyone aligned on that ship going the same way? But how do you also foster a culture where like you want people to challenge you? you you're some of my, the best ideas come from the customer experience team because they're listening to the calls with the customers. So it's always a balancing act. So how, how do you, as a 28 year old, um, uh, how do you lead and manage uh, folks that might be have 20 or 30 years more experience than you do? Like what, what is the answer? What, you know, what are some of your answers? So one thing that's always worked for me is tell them the why, tell them the mission, tell them what we need to achieve, tell them the parameters, but let them handle the how. If you're going to do, if you're going to pay an executive like that big money, what, you can't do their job for them. Why would you hire someone and then go and do your job for their job for them? So I see founders, they hire, let's say typically like a C COO or CFO is probably depends if they're a technical founder. And if not a technical founder, maybe a CTO, but C COO, CFO, those are, you know, common early exec hires. And then the founder wants to like tell them every step of the way how to do their job. So I say, tell them the strategy, tell them the vision let them handle the tactics. If you have to tell an exec like that the how, they're probably not the right person. So I'm a big believer that you challenge people on the interviews. You be, you know, you be very intense. You really size people up and you make sure they're the right person. But when you when you make that decision to bring someone into your mission, to bring someone into your vision, to bring someone into your dream, you have to empower them and you have to let them do their thing. And you have to understand it's going to be different than how you would achieve things. But business is business, whether it's crypto or a printing company or widgets. And a lot of these people know how to run businesses. So just tell them the strategy and trust that they can do the how, because if they can't, you probably made a hiring mistake. So, so what is your vision on Let's just start with Olive since it's kind of the, the newer hot thing in the, the, the software company in the room, if you will, right? What's your vision on for Olive's role in shaping the future of digital currency? 100%. So with Olive, we're not worried about the tens of millions of people in crypto. I'm trying to bring in a substantial portion of that next billion people. The people who are into crypto, who are into blockchain because A, they love the ideology or B, they love the tech. Like they're already in. How do I bring someone in like my grandma who doesn't care what a blockchain is, who doesn't care what crypto is. She just wants to solve a problem, whether it's finding an investment that's performed really well, that's a hedge against inflation, or perhaps finding an easier way to do a remittance. So I think you almost have to make things less crypto centric. Just like when you swipe a credit card, you don't think about the technology and the interchange and all the things behind a credit card. How do we get crypto to that level? And I know I'll never solve it fully in my lifetime, but I at least want to make some impact on that. And yeah. self-custody too. Olive is fully self-custody with 24-7 customer experience. And that was a big bet we made on self-custody because 
your numbers people and your financial people, they'll be like, do a custody wallet because you can monetize it more. But even before the whole FTX thing and all these exchanges going under, we're like, what's the point of crypto if you are not in control of your own financial destiny, if you're not holding your own funds? Yeah. Uh, you know, I've, I, uh, I went to your, to your website just as we were, as we were chatting here. Um, Olive.com. Really, really interesting um, positioning in comparison to the way that you are positioned and message on CoinFlip. And, you know, I just want to like the, the idea of this, we make crypto simple to understand, safe to use and accessible to everyone, not just for big wigs and tech bros, but for normal people doing like, you know, normal stuff. So like where where did that that's a very different message and, and very different uh, you know, messaging style than your, than your coin flip message. How do, how do you guys, uh, there's a lot of traditional businesses out there, people listening that are either doing carve outs or, or building software products within their business. And that's a lot of the work that we do at Orchid Black too. I'm just really interested. How do you, how do you land on messaging like that for one versus the more traditional business in the way that you guys are messaging and positioning that? Yeah, that's a great question. It's never easy to thread that needle, but CoinFlip came out in 2015. And at that point, like even a lot of what I consider the early adopters weren't in. So that was like, you know, the young kids, the college kids, potentially libertarians, the tech bros. So we got to get those people in. And that's a race to get as much as that market share as possible. Now that market share is exhausted. To be honest, you know, it's pretty like those people are in. So what's your next play? How do you bring that next group of people in um, talking about, you know, the ideology of crypto, be your own bank, talking about um, the technology. Oh, blockchain based economies, open public ledger. That is you can't use an argument in brand messaging for one group of people that you know, might be trying to get into crypto seven years ago because they love the tech. And then to someone like my grandma, who's just trying to, you know, send a payment easier. So I think that's when we talk about you're not making the brand, you're not making the message, you're getting informed of that message and the brand from the customer in the market. And so based on what we've seen in the market, we thought that message was the right message because we aren't, we aren't trying to talk to the people already into crypto. They're into crypto. They, you know, whether their money's on Coinbase or on a Trezor, like why would, you know, they don't need us. You know, we want to get that, that next billion people into crypto who wouldn't get into it if it wasn't for us. And that's the message and that's the goal. And you always, it's a loop, right? So like you have a brand, you have a message, you get feedback and data from customers, from the market, and you constantly refine that message. So you're you're building essentially two completely different hardware and software, but interconnected businesses, which is challenging, as as you've yeah. mentioned already. Are you talk, easy talk, way to put it. Challenging. It's it's even where it's harder than challenging, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, how about we say fucking hard, or maybe the dirt, something along those lines. Yeah, because it's probably. You know, like everyone talks, kind of talks about like this yellow brick road of being a founder doing things. And we don't need to go into all that on this show because that'll be part two. But um, but anyways, back back to the, the, the initial context of the question was talk, talk us through the dynamic 
Um, and what motivated you to take on such a big challenge versus building um, a company or a product with a much more similar business model or, you know, much more aligned to the existing path that CoinFlip was going under? Because I imagine that might have been an easier way to go to market, an easier way to build the team around it, right? An easier way to do a lot of things. But you took on a big opportunity. So talk us through just what went into that and you know how you got there. If you want the honest answer, uh, CoinFlip was really fun when I started figuring out how to solve problems. How do we get these ATMs on? How do we service them? How do we you know, structure our customer experience department? Then it became like I figured it out. And then it was just about putting down more and more ATMs. And I got pretty bored of doing that because I like to solve problems. I like to do new things. I like to challenge myself. So yeah. I'm like, we got to take this to the next level. We got to bring in more users, different users. We got to go digital. And by the way, I'm going to bring this all together, like the physical and the digital. I think, you know, there, there's other ATM companies out there that are, you know, starting off or gas station owners want to put it, you know, try their own ATM now. And there's online exchanges, but there's no one that is a self-custodial digital platform that also has these physical branches. So uh, think of all the cool ways the digital and the physical can interact. Imagine, you know, sending a remittance on the Olive app on your phone and then picking it up in your local uh, fiat currency in a different country. So there's a lot of cool ways to bridge the physical um, and the digital experiences. So I do I do have a vision to sort of bring them all together into a unified platform with different channels. You know, you want to get crypto on your phone. You want to cash it out at a physical location. Um, it all sort of think of as Olive as the platform and these these ATMs will just be another um, channel. And I think there's really cool things to do with. Br- I've always been obsessed with like bridging the digital and the physical um, world together. Yeah, man. It's, uh, I mean, you just look at everything going on around us, you know, the blend of AR, VR, the blend yeah. of AI and human beings, right? The, I'm definitely going to become a cyborg one day or merge with an algorithm. So it's, I mean, good. who knows? I may be a cyborg. You don't actually know that there's podcast hosts out there that look very real and are not is, you know, anyways, we don't need it. We'll, we'll, uh, it'll be part three, I guess when, when we meet back up. So, um, you know, there's there's one thing in particular we talked about going into this podcast that is not something we've ever talked about on the show before, but it is so so real. Um, can you can you talk uh, us through the challenges of when a founder, when your personal identity uh, became or becomes too closely intertwined with that of your company and and what that does to someone's mental state. And in, in the case of you, what it did to your mental state. Yeah, that's, I mean, we talk about innovators dilemma, building businesses, brand messaging, but honestly, um, that identity of tying myself to the business has been the most challenging because you know, you almost become one with your business and there's not the separation and it's, it's much more, than just a work-life balance of like, oh, I get home and I'm answering emails or, oh, I'm on a date with my girlfriend and I'm bringing my work problems to the dinner. It's it's mm-hmm. honestly at a deeper level of when you're tying 
your self-esteem and your worth to how your company is performing and how your company is doing. And then you become like a yo-yo because business is going to go up and down. And a lot of times, like it has nothing to do with you and it cuts both ways. So your business could really be struggling. I mean, your business could fail and you might think of less of yourself. You might think of yourself as a bad founder, but businesses fail all the time for nothing, for reasons, nothing to do with your effort or your founding. And then a less, a lesser known sort of thing to think about too, is it goes the other way too. So let's say your business is going really well. And a lot of founders, like you might've, you, you might've been an outcast your whole life. You might've been on the outside. Maybe that's what gave you this motivation to start a business. Cause you wanted to prove people wrong. And finally, for the first time, like things are going right in your life. Like you're the guy, you're the man and you start to buy your own hype because your business is going well and you, you know, you start to buy your own hype and that's when you can start making stupid decisions and being overconfident. And that's when you could run into a lot of trouble. And I mean, I'm so aware of it now, but to this day, when the business does well, I'll get this dopamine hit. And I just make sure to just be self-aware of that and to understand just because the business is doing well doesn't make you a better person than anyone else, doesn't even necessarily make you more talented than anyone else. You still have to stay grounded. And that's a challenge you have to do every single day. You are you are not your business. And but in the beginning you are and you sort of need to be. But at some point for your own mental health and even to just be better at your business, you have to turn it off. And you have to you have to find some self-worth, some identity um, that comes from something besides your business. Because at some point, whether it's in this business or your next business, you will fail at something. And if you tie your identity to your business, I see some people never recover from that. Or I used to be the guy and now my business went under and I, you know, I'm depressed. I've seen people be depressed for five years and the reverse. My business is crushing it. I'm a better person than everyone else. I, you know, I buy my own hype. I'm a genius. I don't need to listen to outside people. So just always don't get too high. Don't get too low. It's just a business. It's just money. It's not, you know, it's not love. It's not your relationships. It's not your integrity. It's not your character. So you still, you know, keep your core and your North star regardless of your business. So is there any, is there any system or, or process or just mentality spirituals that whatever you might, might, whatever you might want to call it, is there anything that you have in place that helps to keep you grounded and not going like the yo-yo you mentioned from ego to, you know, life sucks and, and somewhere in between, like, what is it that keeps you grounded? I would say it's an incredible, it's an incredible self honesty and self awareness of yourself. Like, biology is biology and you know your dopamine your your brain is going to react how your brain reacts but you always the minute you start identifying emotionally with the business with the product with the result you just have to be aware and just check that and that's with anything in life don't 
even with opinions, I, I forget who says on Twitter, but I've always heard the quote, like lots of opinions loosely held. Like, yeah, I could identify with Olive, even like, let's just take this to a pure business perspective. Like I could identify with Olive so much. It's the greatest thing out there. The technology is beautiful. The backend way we're doing some of these things is revolutionary and never has been done before. So I love Olive. It's the greatest product. And that could make me immune to customer feedback. That could make me not believe customer feedback. That could make me have a blind spot on a personal level. That could make me not listen to my executives and people around you. And by the way, on your way up, there's going to be plenty of yes people around you. And if you, you know, believe your own hype, if you do that, like you can get into a lot of trouble. So just being, listen, there's a million ways to get there, whether it's meditating whether it's doing silent retreats, whether it's reading some books about Buddhism or psychology or, you know, just even things like working out or just, hey, after 8 p.m., I'm not going to worry about the business. I think there's a million ways to get there. But what it really comes down to is, and this is more than just in business, but always in life, just be cognizant of what you are emotionally identifying with. You know, I am a business person. I am this political party. I believe this. I am this sort of person. Whenever you emotionally identify, you're closing yourself off to all the other potential possibilities. And at the end of the day, what I actually try and do is, and it sounds a little crazy, but like, how do I have no identity? How do I not attach myself to things? Because everything is fleeting to some extent. Hmm. I don't know if that sounds crazy to your listeners or if there's a little nugget in there, but I'm just always cognizant of what am I emotionally identifying with? Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I think the part that shocked me is the, the, um, the no identity part, right? It's just like, um, I think there's, uh, I think people certainly will identify with, um, with, with your comments and you are, I mean, in a world as polarizing as we have, uh, today and every issue not just political but let's just start there it's it's so easy to get drawn to one side of an argument or another and keeping yourself with a lack of identity allows you to be flexible within those barriers i mean that's no it's a, i've actually never heard anybody uh say it in that way but it's that's that's inter- that's really interesting i'm sure there's Words are spells, right? And that's another, you know, business thing we could go on, but like calling customer experience, customer experience instead of customer support totally changed how, you know, that team interacted with customers in a positive way. But the minute you call yourself something, I am a founder, I am an executive, I am a Republican, I am a Democrat, I am, uh, you know, a longevity person. The minute you call, you give yourself a label you actually subconsciously will start behaving and acting, you know, in the framework of those labels and those beliefs. So that's why for max optionality to really see the truth in business or life, you don't want to label yourself and you don't want to identify yourself. That being said, you never get to know identity, just how you never fully scale a business. You never fully solve a problem. Um, you know, the floor is always crumbling and everything's always fleeting, but that doesn't mean that the journey to try and get there isn't worth it. So in a way, maybe your next company is going to be a fiat company and anti-crypto, given that 
you can't possibly have an identity that favors crypto. And I think like having that when everything was about fiat in 2015, having that identity around crypto or understanding that around crypto sort of it broke. You know, everyone just takes things at face value. This is the banking system. This is fractional reserve banking. But now not, you know, being tied to that, that's how I could see crypto. Right. But if I get and I love crypto, I think it's solving an amazing problem. But if you get the same way, if you get dogmatic about crypto, if you identify too much without crypto, you're just replacing one system with another system. Right. And maybe it's a better system, but you run into the same problem. And I think one thing we were really good about with Olive is by not making it necessarily crypto centric, yeah. sort of it's a financial platform powered by crypto. This isn't a crypto platform by not making it crypto centric. There's, you know, there's no word coin in Olive we're able to see things differently. We're able to bring a customer in that doesn't care about crypto, that you know wants to send a remittance cheaper to uh, their relative in Mexico. So I think having that sort of blank slate mentality, because if we built CoinFlip in 2015, if we're like, we're an ATM company, we're going to run this like Cartronics, but we're going to do this for crypto we would have failed. And with Olive, if we're like, we're just going to be another crypto exchange and we're going to think like crypto bros, we would have also failed. Yeah. No, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very novel way of putting it. So you mentioned, you mentioned a phrase earlier that I want to come back to, um, innovators dilemma, right? Yeah. So, so talk us through the innovators dilemma after scaling coin flip successfully. How, how did you handle... How did you handle that? Yeah. So for those of your listeners who don't know, Innovator's Dilemma, and it's you know not my concept. It's a pretty common business concept. I think it comes from the book, probably called Innovator's Dilemma by, <laughs> I think, Clayton Christensen. Yeah. But if you look at the history of companies, almost no companies succeed at things that are outside their original core competency. So like, let's take an example, just hypothetical, like... Tesla being an electronic or, you know, an electric vehicle company is much more likely to succeed at electric vehicles than a company that's been around for 200 years or 100 years doing normal vehicles that now says I want to pivot into electric vehicles. And there's a lot of reasons why that fails. A lot of times these companies are so big. Let's say you got to grow at 20 percent to sort of appease your investors, your shareholders, whatever. If you're in a, like, let's say a small, like $10 million company, you only have to add $2 million of revenue. So you can go into these markets that are futuristic because by definition, like when you sort of have to get into something early enough to win at it, it's such a small market that, you know, if you're a $10 million company, you can still grow 20% with it. But if you're on a $100 million company, you now need $20 million of revenue to do it. So your shareholders, if you and your execs, if you're like, you know, this is going to be the future and you have to be early, but the market's only 2 million market, Tam, and you're already a $100 million company, you guys aren't going to do it. So that's why these companies are always late. And just your whole organization becomes sort of built around a core competency um, 
you know, let's say normal vehicles. So then when it's electric vehicles, which is a totally different thing, you don't have the organizational skills to do it. So with CoinFlip, how does this apply? The ATMs are the core business. That's our heritage. That's, you know, how we funded Olive. That's how we got to 300 employees. But we realized that, like I said, Every entrepreneur, you are standing. You are standing on a crumbling floor. You know, mm-hmm. you're an innovator today. Tomorrow, you're a dinosaur. Plus, I just like solving cool problems. But to make Olive successful, you almost have to run it like a company within a company. You cannot let the KPIs, the thinking, even the culture of let's call it like an operational excellency, uh, incremental. How do we? You know, make this ATM 5% better. We're not, you know, necessarily inventing a new product. Um, so how do we, you know, keep that running? How do we keep generating cash flows there? But then sort of make this company within a company, Olive, that has totally different KPIs, that has totally different things. I mean, we even, you know, our global headquarters is in Chicago, but we we have an engineering hub of over 50 engineers just sort of in Tampa to partially to achieve that. And then once you sort of stabilize that, how do you unify and bring that together with the physical and the digital? So I know it's sort of all over the place, but the way to sort of solve the innovator's dilemma is, and by the way, you have to innovate. Like if you're just thinking you're going to do one thing, like you're screwed, how do you solve it? You try and isolate that new innovation in your company, like company within a company, as long as you can, but then you do have to unify it together, Um, which is, you know, after post-launch, it's like, hey guys, we're a product company now, and the ATM, that's not even a product, that's just a channel for the Olive platform, just like your phone is a channel for the Olive platform. But if you unify it too early, you'll let the incentives and incentives rule the world of, you know, people getting managers getting comped on. Let's make this ATM 5% more profitable. If you bring that incrementalism um, incentives to transforming and building a new digital platform that's never been done before and you don't even necessarily know who the customer is, like you can't say, oh, let's make this platform 5% better. Let's do 5% more revenue. So how do we sort of isolate that, you know, company within a company? Yeah, I mean, essentially... You know, keeping the the ancillary business insulated in a way that doesn't affect the core business at all, right? Yeah, the core business. The core business makes money today, so the incentive will be to suck resources from your future into today. And right. there's no way around that if you don't protect and isolate and insulate the new venture. Yep. Yep. Well, so that's that is. An important point, everyone stop driving, stop doing whatever you're doing. Well, don't stop driving. Maybe that, that that's probably a bad idea. Get to same place and pull over. Maybe yeah, maybe come back to this later and write that down because that is uh, that is incredible advice, especially for you traditional business owners out there that are that are that are innovating and, and building new things and and maybe going through that same, you know, innovators dilemma or same uh, imposter syndrome or you know, whatever you know, whatever it is that you're going through that's keeping you from, um, you know, reaching uh, some of the things that, that Ben's talking about here. So imposter syndrome is also something interesting to think about because 
I mean, I was even just thinking about this in life a little bit, like growing up, you're always like, oh, adults all have it, you know, figured out. I'm like, oh, you turn, I guess, 21 or whatever. And like, oh, now I'm an adult. I have it figured out. And right. even now at 28, I feel like a grown up kid who's learning stuff every day. It's the same way in business. Like I've never been a CEO before. I, you know, have 300 employees now, more than 300 who are counting on me to write the to, to make the right decisions. And I've never done this before. And you're asking yourself every day, do I, do I know what I'm doing? Do I, you know, there's no, especially in a business like this, you know, we're not doing a manufacturing plant or a restaurant. Like there really is no playbook for that. So I think another, you know, it's probably part four, but another thing is to explore is like, how do you trust yourself when you've never done something like this before? Yeah. Yeah. And there's no real great answer for that. Yeah, it's the combination of putting great people around you, challenging group think like with my core executive leadership team. If I have an idea and everyone's like, you know, six to zero, we love it. I'm like, all right, hold up. We're going to like, you know, yeah. dig into this more because that's we shouldn't all be in agreement. But I think that balancing trusting yourself and your vision because don't sell yourself short. Like if you're doing your own thing you have a vision, you are special, your brain's probably wired a little differently than others out there, you know, in a positive way. So trust your vision, but then also you have to put guardrails around yourself. Um, yeah. So it's a balance though. Well, and the more you learn and the more you, you, you age and the more experience and expertise that you get, the more you realize just how much you don't know. And yeah. that just further uh, advances some of that imposter syndrome in yeah, a way that you're really low. As long as you know what you don't know, you'll be good. Exactly. It's dangerous when you think you know stuff that you don't. Very true. Very true. All right. Well, um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about parts two, three, four, and, and maybe there will be a five through ten. So uh, Ben will be back on at some point in time. This has been super helpful. Let's close us off today with our founder five, Ben. So the first question I got for you is what is the, the top metric or KPI that you are relentlessly focused on? Yeah. So two different businesses, so can't have one KPI, but I would say in terms of on the ATM side and operational excellency, unit economics, everyone in this business wanted to measure their success with number of kiosks, but then in a bear market, people got caught with their pants down and they overextended. If you, no matter what business you're in, if you know, everyone wants to focus on growth, but if your unit economics don't make sense, mm -hmm. you will get burned when the economy changes. On the digital side of the business, it's all about engagement, engagement, engagement. So users, I mean, you have to have the KPIs through the whole funnel, like who signed up, who got the wallet, where did they drop off, who started halfway and then left. But it really comes down to users because revenue is worthless at this point. You know, you don't care if it's 10% higher revenue. You want as many users because you want to understand their behavior. You want to see what they care about. You want to, you know, if you bring them on for buying crypto, but they could also be a user for remittance, like you're never going to get them on the remittance thing if you don't bring them into the ecosystem and bring them into the network. So on any digital product, for me, it's users, which is just a proxy for engagement. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, what is a uh, top tip 
for growth stage founders like yourself? A top tip for growth stage founders, put people around you who've done this before you need. Okay. So how do you manage an exec who's better at business than you, but isn't a founder? So they will know the how they will know how to run a business. What they might get wrong is the assumptions about your business. So when you're, I say the word managing, but you're not really managing exact. You're sort of partnering with them, empowering them. Ask them their assumptions and their starting point, because if they're logical about how they would run the business, but their key assumption is wrong, mm-hmm. you will, you know, they'll do a lot of great work, but they'll get to the wrong result. One other tip for th- people thinking about starting a business. If you are find yourself asking your friends or your parents, like, should I do this? I need your advice. If you're every time I've been asking for advice in life, I was actually asking for permission. So if you're asking to, if you should start a business, you already know the answer. If you feel like you need the permission, I give you the permission. You're never going to get there to start a business from like a rational, like cost benefit analysis. You are going to take a leap of faith or else someone else will do it. So just understand if you're even thinking about it, you know, you already want to do it and you're never going to get there rationally. So you just have to take a leap. Yeah. And I give you permission too. So that's two permissions. You're done. Yeah, exactly. All right. uh, Favorite book or podcast that's helped you to grow. Favorite book, Sapiens and then the sequel, um, Homo Deus. I'm sure a lot of your, you know, it's a pretty big favorite in the entrepreneur world, but just this idea that, humans grew and sort of took over the world because their ability to tell stories and yeah. their ability, ability to collectively action themselves. So when we talk about identity too, ask yourself, what is the story you are telling yourself in your head about yourself and challenge that? What is the story you are telling yourself about your company and challenge that? What if you have a conflict with an exec or with a co-founder, What is the story? A lot of times people think conflict is malicious, but a lot of times it's just people having different stories. What is the story you're telling yourself about your co-founder's intentions? And what do you think the story he's telling you or he's telling his self about your intentions? So just understand the stories in your head. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Sapiens, man. I haven't heard that one on the show yet after 70 episodes or so. Really? But no, I haven't. And wow. and now hearing it, I'm a little surprised how, but also it's a, you know, there's a lot of complexity in that book that I think is, is hard for some people to digest too, but it's high, high, I highly recommend it as well. Um, all right. Also uh, a piece of advice that counters traditional wisdom. It's getting more and more traditional, but the world is ruled by power laws, like in business, like there's one or two decisions you're going to make, even in my life, I think of five to 10 decisions that are responsible for 95% of the output. So stop sweating all the little stuff. Like I'm, I'm decently hands off on most of the things, except for the one to two things every quarter that I know are going to really move the needle. So do less things better and understand that inputs don't relate to outputs. 90% of the stuff you do won't you know, produce any meaningful results. So how do you find that 10% or even 1% that's actually key? Yeah. It's amazing how many people I see 
so busy and hundred plus hours of work and, you know, running around with their, their, your, their, their heads cut off, right? Yeah. With Put yourself in positions. Life is a numbers game. Put yeah. yourself in positions where you can benefit from asymmetric upside. All right. Lastly, what is going to be the title of your autobiography? Wow. I didn't think of this one. I guess how to feel like you sometimes don't know what you're doing, but you manage at the end of the day um, to win and to build. So let me, let me make that a little more succinct. How to, how to question yourself every day, but still win. I actually like the really long version because that way the front and the back could have the title and there's not a lot of people that do that. So that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> awesome, man. Um, you've given a ton to, to our relate, to our listeners today, uh, Ben. And so time for a little bit of self-promotion. How, how can those listening help you out? Sure. So coinflip.tech, if you want to see a Bitcoin ATM, olive.com, if you want to get into that next generation financial services platform powered by crypto, um, I promise it looks different than anything else you've seen out there. On Instagram, it's Ben Coinflip. On Twitter, it's Ben Weiss. I couldn't choose, I couldn't decide which handle I like better. So I have two different handles. But yeah, nice. that's how you can find me. Very cool. And, and uh, that's probably the best way for listeners to get in touch with you as well, then. Yeah. Awesome, dude. Well, this has been a pleasure. And uh, Ben Weiss, everyone, thank you for sharing your dirt. Awesome, man. Uh, you have an awesome rest of your week, dude. Thank you. You too, Jim. Great chat. Absolutely. Take care. See ya. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt.